The following is the 2012 commencement address and Numata lecture delivered by Professor Franz Metcalf, recorded at the Institute of Buddhist Studies on May 18, 2012. For more information, please visit podcast.shin-ibs.edu. Thank you, Dr. Payne and Reverend Harada for your opening remarks. I'm very, very pleased at this time to be able to introduce to you today our commencement speaker. He is Dr. Franz Metcalf. Um, let me tell you a little bit about him. He received his BA from the University of California, Berkeley, and his MA degree from the Graduate Theological Union. And his PhD he received from the University of Chicago, the Divinity School. Uh, he's currently um, on the faculty of the California State University of Los Angeles, and he's the author of numerous books uh, applying the Buddhist teachings to our everyday lives, including uh, Just Ask Buddha and Buddha in Your Backpack. Uh, Dr. Metcalf's talk, which today has been generously supported by the Numata Foundation, is entitled Our Buddha Dharma, Our Buddhist Dharma. And this address will explore our evolving Buddhist Dharma in two senses. That is, it tries to begin uh, clarifying the Dharma in the sense of uh, a, what the Buddha Dharma as teaching is, and our Dharma as duty, uh, what it is toward the Buddha Dharma. Uh, so without further ado, I hope all of you will uh, join me in welcoming our commencement address uh, speaker, Dr. Franz Metcalf. I forgot how beautiful. Last time I was here was two years ago in an academic conference, and so we had the door shut here. The door shut to the Buddha. What were we thinking? <laughs> but it's. I'm, first, let me thank um, Dean Payne and the trustees uh, of the Institute for Buddhist Studies for entrusting this address to me. Um, and next, uh, today's graduates, I give you my sincere congratulations on the work that you've done and on the work that you will continue to do throughout the unimaginable future. Um, so today, uh, I'm attempting to do two things uh, that combine my status as scholar and practitioner um, and as long ago GTU graduate. <laughs> I'm, I'm not wearing my Chicago robes, so I'm wearing the GTU robes in solidarity. <laughs> Uh, long ago GTU graduate and, of course, present day addresser of graduates. I'm giving the spring Numata lecture and the graduation address simultaneously. <clears throat> I have thus written a speech that combines the brilliant Dharma analysis of Jack Black with the gut busting hilarity of Nagarjuna. <laughs> Probably I should have done it the other way around, but oh well. Um, I want to ask and, and answer two questions, just, just two. And they're exceedingly simple questions. First, what is Buddhism? And second, what is our relation to Buddhism? In other words, what is the Buddha Dharma and what are our Buddhist dharmas or duties toward it? Okay then. I start with a provocative article published right here in Pacific World uh, in which Hilary Rodriguez provisionally granted Buddhist status, in fact, Buddhavachana, that is the true word of the Buddha status, 
to the teachings of Jiddu Krishnamurti, the great 20th century anti-guru. She asked, quote, what is properly Buddhism and what constitutes Dharma and what should or should not be regarded as Buddha Vachana, unquote. And her answer, rooted in Shantideva's Shiksha Samuchaya and even earlier in the Anguttara Nikaya 779 was, words that lead toward nirvana are Buddha Vachana, whoever says them. Does this mean then that Krishnamurti's words form part of Buddhism? Let's turn to the experts in definition, the semanticists, the linguists, and the philosophers. They speak of two kinds of definitions, stipulative and lexical. Stipulative definitions define things exactly as in legal contracts. We must, at the very beginning, give up the quest for a stipulative definition of Buddhism. It would be like uh, the work of a civilization described by Lewis Carroll that, quote, made a map of the country on the scale of a mile to a mile. <laughs> when, when asked if it got used much, uh, the character answered, uh, it has never been spread out yet. <laughs> the farmers objected. They said it would cover the whole country and shut out the sunlight. So we now use the country itself as its own map. And I assure you, it does nearly as well. <laughs> so giving up on the stipulative map slash definition of Buddhism, as large as the thing itself, we turn to the lexical definition. A few words that refer us to Buddhism, allowing us, as Mr. Carroll says, to use the country itself as the map. Well, Shantideva and the Anguttara Nikaya propose what biologists call a phonetic definition, one that depends not on historical connection, but on similarity of characteristics. This is how, for example, we define religion in general. Various religions qualify as religions, uh, even though they have no historical connection to each other. Thus, using a phonetic definition, Krishnamurti's teachings can be Buddhist simply because they, they sound that way. If we're gonna do that, then surely we're doing the same thing with Buddhism itself. Um, Buddhism is that which is in harmony with what has been seen as Buddhism and which leads to nirvana. The task becomes putting criteria to the phrase, what has been seen as Buddhism. Naturally, I assume we all have experienced exactly what nirvana means, so we don't have to define that. We can accept Rodriguez's phonetic definition of Buddhism and be almost comically universal, but um, most of us feel intuitively drawn to something more historically rooted. What we call Buddhism must not simply look like Buddhism, for instance, Krishnamurti, or one of my favorite films, Groundhog Day, because you know, in Groundhog Day, Bill Murray's character goes through this series of repeating the same day over and over again, which is just a beautiful example of rebirth and, and getting on the bodhisattva path. And it's, it's fantastic. If you haven't seen it, I'm making this your graduation homework. So you have to go see it. So in contrast, we feel somehow that Buddhism must actually be in continuity with some historical stream of the Buddhist tradition. This sort of definition is called, just so you know, because you're gonna use this all the time in new, your new jobs. This word is gonna come up all the time. It's called phyletic, okay? <laughs> or you can use the word cladistic. So you get your choice depending on the, on the, on the context. I, you'll know which one to use. So see what you're gonna miss when you leave academia. <laughs> anyway, um, this, using a, a phyletic or cladistic definition allows us to redefine our definition of Buddhism down to 
streams of practice and their supporting texts and institutions that flow from what we can trace back to Shakyamuni, or at least to early Buddhism. Okay, but what if we find something, Aum Shinrikyo comes to mind, that is clearly phaletically Buddhist, but we want to read out of the tradition. What to do? See, here's where that phonetic definition comes in back to our rescue. Did Aum Shinrikyo practice lead to nirvana? Not seemingly. So using this canonically supported uh, phonetic definition of Buddhism, Aum Shinrikyo is not Buddhist. Whew. Okay, so we're saved from that. But uh, where do we stand now? Our working definition of Buddhism has become more complex. Uh, it now includes both phonetic and phyletic uh, criteria. So uh, the latter part is relatively simple, um, since it's just a mere matter of tracing back um, the forms of Buddhism back to the founder. The Zen tradition is really great at that. You know, they're a perfect model for that. They just make it up. <laughs> the harder part is naming the qualities we find exhibited in, um, like, no offense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the harder part is finding the qualities and naming the qualities that we find exhibited in Buddhism. But we have something to start with. We have already things in harmony with Buddhism and which lead toward nirvana. But the problem with this is both too inclusive and too exclusive because uh, Krishnamurti is in because his words potentially lead toward nirvana, but something like um, bone odori dancing is not because the dance doesn't lead to nirvana. So the problem here is that we're using a monothetic approach. I, I love vocabulary, sorry. Um, what is Buddhism must contain all the qualities of Buddhism. What we need here is a polythetic approach. What is Buddhism must contain some good number of qualities that we find in Buddhism. Then this approach is, of course, serendipitously much more Buddhist in a sense because it doesn't posit an, an essence to Buddhism that has to be fulfilled. Uh, it categorizes what is Buddhism as a loose and changing group of things that share family resemblances to bring in Wittgenstein, which is always a cool thing to do in a graduation speech. Um, none of which are absolutely necessary, um, and in fact, none of which are even exclusive to Buddhism. And so we don't require the full set of family resemblances, just enough to make the grade. Rather than an essence, Buddhism, by this definition, is defined by a set of qualities shared to greater or lesser degrees by institutions calling themselves Buddhist throughout space and time. I like it. <laughs> the devil, of course, is in the details, though, and it becomes our job as scholars and also as practitioners to get in there and do the devil's work. Is being self-consciously Buddhist one of the qualities? I think so. And Krishnamurti lacks it, of course. So one strike against Krishnamurti. Do we need three to strike him out? Should we add participates in ritual or values the three treasures, or promotes the eightfold path, or believes in anatta. Frankly, a lot of would-be Buddhists would strike out on that really believes in anatta one. Um, well, I'm sorry to tell you, actually, I'm not. I'm relieved to tell you it's time to stop and leave this job to you. See, that's phyletics in action. I hand you the three treasures to define and take refuge in. Buddhism is your responsibility now. Wait, is that fair? Actually, I believe it is fair. Scholars must define what, what Buddhism is with quotes around it. And this is simply because Buddhism is a scholarly category. As 
but as Jonathan Z. Smith has famously said, map is not territory. Buddhism will only and always be a map, something quite useful and over which scholars have rightful dominion. But there will always and also remain the territory of beliefs and practices and rituals and groups and experiences and objects that our label Buddhism only signifies. In that realm, reality, practitioners have dominion. This brings us, as promised, to the question of our roles vis-a-vis -vis this vague and vital thing we can we call because our lives are too short to pr pronounce its ever-lengthening name, Buddhism. What dharma, what duty do we owe this reality? Are we really supposed to continually juggle these bowling balls, I'm sorry, treasures? Uh, in answer, I'm going to evoke a currently very hip um, intellectual authority, Thomas Tweed. Tweed recently wrote in the virtual pages of Journal of Global Buddhism, of which I'm proud to be book review editor and so I'm happy to plug here. Here's what he wrote. Buddhist, Buddhist leaders have the right, even the role-specific obligation, to determine what constitutes authentic Buddhism. But scholars and Buddhist practitioners, when they contribute to academic conversations, have another duty, I suggest, to follow the flows wherever they lead. I admire the work of Professor Tweed, and I'm delighted that he lets us scholars off the hook we needn't even define what constitutes Buddhism. That's for Buddhist leaders. I, I reckon that means the Board of Trustees. <laughs> so, you go. Hope you were listening to the first part of the, the speech, because it gives you something to go on. Um, there's only one problem with, with uh, Tweed's advice. It's absolutely wrong. <laughs> I know, and I say this, I say this with, with trepidation and humility, uh, but I still say it. Tweed, as many others, uh, presents what I think is a disingenuously narrow view of academia, of scholar and scholarship, and what he calls academic conversations. It's as if his definition of religion as translocative flowing and dwelling applies only to religion and stops at the firm shores of scholarship, as if we could stand outside the flows of contemporary Buddhism even as we study it. Tweed is wrong, I think, about scholarship, at least about scholarship that's worth doing, which is smart, useful, and effective. In fact, I would dare to utter the word prophetic. That's what we're called to do as scholars. <sighs> and here I should probably add something like Luther's, here stehe ich, ich kann nicht anders, God helfe mich, amen. Um, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. <laughs> Tweed once asked, is it appropriate for religious studies scholars as specialists in the comparative study of religion to enter the public conversation about how they and others ought to act in the civil arena at the PTA, the mall, or city hall? For me, the question is absurd on its face. I'm reminded of Rabbi Hillel the Elder's powerful questions. If I am not myself, who is? If I am only myself, what am I? And if not now, when? It is for us to define Buddhism. It is for us to do so now. And this now is always. So I ask, can a genuine scholar of Buddhism be only a scholar? Even for those of you graduating from IBS to pursue PhDs in Buddhist studies, 
Can you do so well and yet distort the Buddha Dharma? Can you do so and yet intentionally practice himsa or wrong speech? But if not, then are you not also practicing Buddhism? Are you not displaying a good few of those family resemblances that I mentioned, beginning with right speech, the first duty of scholarship, but expanding finally to panya? You may argue that you're not really a practitioner, you're really a scholar, that is your essence, but we Buddhists smile on essences condescendingly, don't we? <laughs> Two years ago, in this hall, I delivered a paper in which I replied to a paper by uh, the IBS's own Natalie Cooley, claiming, I am a scholar practitioner, the contemporary position analogous to the Gantadura Bhikkhu, the scholar monk, a position that traditionally afforded a lot of critical freedom. Cooley wondered if this might be stretching the scholar monk term too far. In my case, perhaps, yes. But who is to say, really? And I mean this non-rhetorically. Who really is to say who can or who must speak for and against Buddhism? What, what of you all sitting there uh, being fettered today? Who among you deserves the honor or must face the duty of critique? The MAs? No? Well, the MBSs perhaps? Surely the MDivs, right? To Ekai Rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, if not you, who? if not now, when? I'm afraid that in my view, it is all of you, all of us. You might have noticed that I'm, I'm wearing this GTU master's gown. Today, I'm standing before you just as you are before me, as a master's degree holder who took many courses at IBS. I'm a Gantadura Bhikkhu, just as you. I'm addressing you from up here, but I'm right there with you, wondering what to do with myself. Indeed, at base, there's no speaker without an audience, nor an audience without a speaker. We're, we enter our, as Thich Nhat Hanh says. So it's not for me, then, to withhold from you, from anyone, the privilege and the responsibility of flowing with Buddhism into the future, as if you could exist separately from the Dharma, and as if I could withhold it from you in the first place. You're not merely following those flows. You're part of them. You may lay back and point your toes, as Tweed advises, but your every breath impedes and impels the smallest of those flows. And I hope and trust that some of you will even rechannel the deepest and most powerful of them. This is your dharma in all its senses, your teaching, your responsibility, what you uphold and what upholds you. You have been dharma students, now you will be dharma teachers, whether you chase PhDs or Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. Well, since you graduates are going out into the world, after this glorious moratorium of study at IBS, you'll be facing the job market in earnest. Unless, of course, you're putting that all off and getting a PhD. Woohoo! But you'll be looking for a livelihood, a right livelihood. This is your dharma, in the oldest sense of the word, the sense that of that which supports, that which sustains. Right livelihood supports you by earning you the money for your material needs, but it also supports you by lifting your spirits and, of course, lifting up the world. But, of course, you can only lift up the world by pushing yourself a little lower. In my description for this talk, I mentioned the scholar's bottomless pit of circular inquiry in defining Buddhism and the practitioner's deepening chasm of dharmic responsibility. 
These are our oceanic vortices sucking us under the sea of Dharma. But what a joyous abandonment it can be to give yourself up and let the Dharma flows take you where they will. Going deeper into the Dharma drowns only parts of ourselves which we never really needed in the first place. So I want to close by something from my new book, Being Buddha at Work, in the hope of easing your descent uh, into the specific Dharma of the workplace, something perhaps in your near future. And just to prove that I'm not trying to get you to buy the book, I'm, I'm, I won't, let me tell you that all the graduates and the Board of Trustee members um, today are getting copies of the book, um, if, <laughs> if you want them, as, as my dana to you. The Buddha changed career in major ways three times before hitting on something that stuck. And those changes were seriously downwardly mobile. <laughs> in his first career, he was the heir apparent to the family business, running a fiefdom of the Kosalan kingdom. This is a sweet setup, right? protected from all the dukkha in his various palaces and the gardens and all that stuff. At best, he was the best at everything he tried. He was one of those wonder boys who bosses go gaga over. He couldn't do wrong. But even for the golden boy, it, it fell apart. Like most golden boys, he eventually discovered that his little world didn't match reality. In the myth, Siddhartha sees a sick person, an old person, a dead person, and an ascetic. In our lives, we see dysfunctional groups, people playing out the string until they're vested, people in tedious or dead-end jobs, and people quitting. So he made his first career change. He walked out on his job, giving up the promise of becoming CEO. He became a bhikkhu, which literally means beggar. That, friends, is the courage to begin at the very bottom. He sought out spiritual mentors and teachers to show him the way to spiritual awakening, Unfortunately, they couldn't. They showed him austerities, meditations, self-mortifications, and he excelled in them. He attracted a little crowd of disciples who followed him around thinking he was the best, which he was. But what was the use? He was a glorious success in his second career by any standard but his own. He was the best faster, the best meditator, but he could not solve the question of why we suffer. So he quit again. He ate a little rice dish, a peasant offered him and his disciples turned away. For them, for the crowd, he had abandoned the correct way. For himself, he was beginning his third career, independent seeker. And once he found this new path, this middle way, he quickly found the answers to his questions. He sat under the Bodhi tree and meditated, determined to go within and find the answers he had failed to find in external circumstances. He began to teach and he never stopped until his final breath. Along the way, Siddhartha did the things that any smart career changer would do. And this may apply to you. No. Okay. One, drop a career that makes you miserable. Life is short. Move on and try something new and keep on trying new things until you find what works for you. Two, listen to the advice of people who love you, like your parents, and to experts, like spiritual teachers. But do not obey them blindly. Test what they say against your own intuitive heart in deciding what path is right for you. Think for yourself, as Siddhartha did. Three, take time to know yourself. Learn what makes you tick. Discover what makes you truly happy, not superficially, but deeply. It takes time and focused attention to learn this. Do not skimp. Ask hard questions of yourself. Four, 
Once you know what you want, take action. Do not linger in situations that make you unhappy just for the sake of your family's wishes or for money. Don't sell your soul for a paycheck or for others' approval. Walk your own path. Do you think it was easy for Siddhartha to walk away from his first career into the absolute unknown, giving away everything he had? But he was the Buddha, you say. Not yet. He was just like us, an unhappy guy who knew that life should be more. Life should be more. You know, reading that line now, I can't tell you exactly what I meant when I wrote it. I can only tell you that it's a treasure to know that life should be more. The sort of sunken treasure that drags you down to the bottom of the dharmic ocean. The dharma sustains us like water sustains fish without our even noticing. As you sink, as we all sink into this pellucid, limitless dharma, let us strive to make life more for all beings throughout space and time. I will if you will.